Hey everyone, and welcome back to another book podcast. This week, we had the wonderful Fran Hill in the office to talk to her lovely editor, Carrie Rosen, all about the inspiration behind her funny, moving and fresh debut novel, Cuckoo in the Nest, which is based in part on her own childhood in foster care. And not only do we get to share a lovely chat with Fran, WF Howes very kindly provided the first chapter of the Cuckoo in the Nest audiobook with us. So stay tuned as that's included at the end of this episode. Enjoy! As per usual, a quick disclaimer. Despite any connections to the publishing industry, all opinions on books and biscuits are completely our own here at Another Book Podcast. So let's dive into this week's episode. Welcome, Fran. So let's start off by talking about what gave you the idea for Cuckoo in the Nest. Um, I've been thinking. I had been thinking for a while about a story that focused on the teenager's experience of being fostered, rather than the parents' experience. So I was interested in exploring that from the point of view of the teenager themselves and their sort of way of looking at the world. And that's how I came up with Jackie. Um, yeah. And um, I know that as a similar age teenager, you were fostered yourself back in, yeah. around the same time that Jackie is in the yeah. book. How much of you is in Jackie? Because I think a lot of people have said she's very autobiographical, but I don't know if it, that is really the case. I wasn't... Um, I seriously didn't write it with it being autobiographical in mind. And I, I, as I was writing Jackie, I was thinking, oh, I wish I'd been like this kid. But since then... Yeah, so I think she was kind of the teenager I thought I'd like to have been. A lot more witty, a lot more intelligent, a lot more focused on school, all the things I wasn't. But since I wrote it, people who know me are saying, oh, we can so hear your voice in Jackie. So, yeah, I didn't do that on purpose, but maybe just subconsciously she's crept out. (laughs) But, yeah. And did you want to shine a light particularly on the fostering experience rather than just setting the book yeah, because um, I wrote a memoir three years ago and, and that's about a life, a day, a year in the life of, of a teacher and my, myself as a teacher. And there were a couple of foster children, foster st- stories going on in that. Um, and I thought this would be great just to sort of focus on one particular child's experience, but also about the impact that the child has on the family. Um, and I don't think a family who takes on a foster child can ever really anticipate what impact that child is going to have on them. In fact, I don't know, they can't possibly anticipate that because those those things have never been mixed up before. Yeah, because in the book, the walls take in Jackie and yeah. they've got a daughter the same age. So yeah. They presumably think how perfect they'll get on like a house on fire from the beginning and obviously it was never going to be that simple. No, and I think they really want, they really want Amanda, I think, to have... It's their own daughter. I think they really want her to have a sister, but she doesn't want a sister. Um, in fact, I think in the story, um, they were meant to have taken on a younger child. They thought they were going to get a younger child, and then they actually get somebody the same age because Jackie needs emergency care. So, yeah, that kind of sets the fireworks off. <laughs> and um, it also features a, a Dalmatian. Was there a reason for choosing a Dalmatian? Okay, so the story is inspired by a foster placement I I only remember vaguely. And this is... I was permanently fostered at 14, but I think maybe I was about 12. When I went to a foster home, and I can't remember 
much about it at all. But there was a Dalmatian. In fact, there may have been two, but there was one. And one of the reasons I remember it, although I didn't put this in the book, is that whenever Coronation Street came on, the telly, that kind of da-da-da-da-da-da, the Dalmatian would come and sit in front of the TV and go, <laughs> and sing along. And I've never forgotten that Dalmatian. I remember more about the dog than I do about the family. And maybe, I don't know if I wasn't there for very long, I just don't remember the details. So, um, yeah, in one way, that made it kind of a safe inspiration for the book because I remember so little about that family, just that there was a girl of a similar age, a Dalmatian, and that's about it, really. That's all that made it into the book. And it's a glorious, well, I hesitate to call it a period piece, given as the 70s feels like five minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, it is a glorious period piece of the 70s, complete with all those cultural references that will appeal to anybody who lived through that time. Yeah, and um, I wanted it to have that flavour, especially as it's the heatwave year that everybody remembers who was there, um, 1976. So I wanted it to have all that, but then as I started writing, you know, I realised that well, I wanted Amanda to love her music, which meant looking up again, because my memory is terrible, so I didn't remember all the bands. Um, but that was great research to do, looking up... Um, and there's a particular website as well that I found where you can plug in the date and the time and it will tell you what was on TV. Oh, and that amazing. was absolutely brilliant. So I could be completely authentic with saying that on May the 25th at 9 o'clock they were watching BBC and this was on. And it's just the best website ever. I can't remember the name of it, but anyone who wants to know, let me know. Um, yeah. And the food. And the food. Again, that meant a bit of research, but lots of that I did remember. Um, yeah, I think it's fair to say we've come quite a long way in a culinary sense since <laughs> 1976. <laughs> yeah, I think so, yeah. But I suppose we thought we were Bridget in the book who does most of the cooking. I think she thinks she's very adventurous with what she does. But, yeah, looking back on it, maybe not. And I love the fact that, you know, we start off thinking of the walls as the perfect model family, respectable, together, and Jackie's come from this really hard background and kind of comes into their midst. But actually we soon learn that she's possibly one of the more sorted characters amongst them, and that's mm. not necessarily what you would expect. Yeah, I think the walls think they are sorted, and I think they think that having Jackie to live with them will sort them more. Um, but I think they're looking really f to foster her in a way to sort of atone a little for things in their past, which we find out about, which I will not mention here. Um, and also, Jackie has not always been in a d dysfunctional home. I mean, that wasn't my experience. I My home was always difficult and dangerous until I was fostered. But Jackie has known... Um, a period of calm when she's an, a, um, a younger child until things go belly up with her parents and then her mum dies and her dad goes into sort of alcoholism in quite a big way. And I, I thought that was really interesting that she has known what a settled life is like and I think that's when she goes to the walls perhaps she's more aware of where they could be or should be than they are, which I found quite interesting to write about. Absolutely. You mentioned earlier your memoir, um, and this is your first full-length work of fiction. How different did you find the whole process? Yeah, totally different. I mean, for my memoir, which I wrote as a diary and took 
the dates of a school year, literally took, wrote a, an entry for every day of a school year. And I was able to use... I used a couple of my old teacher's planners to follow the school year through and sort of represent that. Writing Jackie, I suppose because the memoir was writing me and I didn't really have... Uh, yeah, yeah, did I have things to explore? I did have things to explore in my own personality, actually. I did find out things about myself as I wrote, but not in the way when you're writing fiction and then a character goes and does something completely different to what you expect. So I think writing Jackie's book... The element of surprise was there a lot more than writing the memoir, which I guess you could expect. And the reviews and um, endorsements have been extraordinary. How's that been for you? Just a massive surprise, really. Every every time I see a new one, I'm thinking, really? (laughs) Um, I think I have trust issues. (laughs) I know I have trust issues. But no, that's, that's been great. And also, it's given me a huge amount of confidence. Um because it's the first time probably that I thought, no, okay, people people are saying you this is good. And it's, yeah, giving me confidence when I kind of open up the laptop and face another blank screen. I mean, I fell in love with Jackie the minute I read her and I knew that we had to be together. <laughs> and, um, and uh, you know, I, I think when you first got my original email, you weren't quite sure what to make of it. I think I replied, is this a hoax? <laughs> Which was a bit rude on first meeting. <laughs> so well, you're forgiven. It's fine. We Thank we you. we managed to work together on the book very happily. Yeah. Um, hang on a break because I've just forgotten what I was going to ask about. Oh yeah. So and um, and just around the oh, I think it no sorry on publication day you also got to appear on Women's Hour. Tell me about that. Yeah, another surprise. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't have too long to prepare for that. Otherwise, I think I'd have screwed myself up into some kind of paranoid mess but it was it was really good and I I was aware of the fact that it was quite privileged to get that slot and so I was very grateful to Legend for organizing it and um, yeah I think what really encouraged me was that presenter um, Nula had obviously looked at the book and really liked what she'd seen and I could hear her enthusiasm and that's a great way to start a podcast or a sort of radio interview um, so yeah, that was really encouraging. Were you nervous? I was really nervous because I knew it was live and I knew it was important. But she, well, I guess she's just a brilliant presenter. You know, Were you in the studio? No, I was in my bedroom over Zoom. Um, but yeah, it was good. Um, the one thing that was, yeah, did go a little bit wrong was that as I, as the producer just said to me, Fran, you're going live any minute now. So I was just waiting to go live and then I I had my bedroom curtains shut against the sun and then I heard that there was a window cleaner on the other side of the window kind of making shh, 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 shh sounds which I knew were going to come over if I went live. Fortunately, he he stopped just as they pulled me in to the interview, so that was good. That would have been an awkward explanation. (laughs) I don't know how to have got round that without difficulty. (laughs) And um, many of the readers who've loved the book have said that they would love to know more about what happens to Jackie. Is that going to be something that might happen? Yeah, I've been working on a sequel because like those readers, I also wanted to know. I finished the first book and I just thought, you know, what's going to happen to her in the future? How is she going to cope when her dad comes out of prison? He goes to prison in the first book. What's their relationship going to be like? 
Are they going to try and get back to what they used to have? Is that even possible? What if he lets her down again? Is she, how many times is she going to forgive? Um, so I've really been enjoying writing that. And so I finished the first draft and I'm just about to go back to the, do the 37 rewrites. <laughs> And how much of that is based on things that happened to you or is it taking it in a different it's, direction? That's taken it completely on, yeah. I mean, it's an even more different experience to my own experience to to be talking about her at 17. Um, yeah, she's in a very different place to the place I was in. And how's the reaction to the book been from the care and fostering community? Yeah, I mean, um, I don't think we arranged this, but it's coincided with um, Foster Care Fortnight, um, that which is happening over this fortnight, so the book's just come out ready for that. Um, I had some interest from um, a request for an interview from um, a magazine that's produced for social workers, so I've been interviewed for that. And I, I didn't really intend all that. Um, I didn't understand, I don't think, how that it could make a contribution towards that discussion. But my daughter-in-law is a social worker, and she said to me, she was recommending it to all her social work friends because she said having a fictional perspective from the child's voice was really helpful to them as professionals. And that I should have thought that through, but I didn't, and it was a completely new idea, but it's kind of given it a bit of an edge for me and I'm given me a bit more purpose in what I'm writing and, and who I might be writing for. So, yeah, that's been really cool, actually. Um I guess I thought my involvement with fostering was kind of over because I'd been fostered as a child and I've never been a foster parent. But now I realise I've still got that perspective to give and and an interesting perspective in that it's a 1970s perspective. And so social workers now and foster carers can compare my experience with what's happening now. Is it very different? I'd, I think the issues for the child probably haven't changed in that the child needs somewhere to love someone to love them and somewhere to belong, some place of healing. So I don't think things have changed for the child. I think probably things have changed for the professionals massively. And in terms of what prospective foster parents have to to do? Yeah, the rigorous sort of application process, Um, some of the rules and regulations and the things that foster parents have to do or not do. I think a lot of that's changed. Um, although, obviously, as I, when I was a foster child, I didn't really know what was going on behind the scenes. But certainly, I mean, I remember um, my social workers coming to fetch me once a week, as happens to Jackie, actually, taking me to a cafe for a couple of hours. I remember one social worker, I used to go to her house once a week and play with her little kids for a couple of hours, and that was her kind of, you know, a way of sort of accepting me and making me feel like she trusted me and that was really valuable but I don't think that happens now well I know you wouldn't go to a social worker's house um you might go out for coffee so I'm told by social workers you might take a foster child out for coffee but you probably wouldn't have a couple of hours for that so I think maybe that's a shame that um there isn't so much time for them to build a relationship because surely that's what it's about some kind of restoring their trust in the adult world and if there isn't so much time for that that's a shame and I know that most social workers including those who work in fostering are doing paperwork 80 to 90 percent of the time and that's what I've been reliably told and that doesn't leave a lot of time for the person to person contact.
But to you as a child, those relationships were really important. Yeah, although I don't think I, re- I don't think I appreciated them at the time. Now I look back and think they were really trying to um, help me to not be just such a plonker. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't be hard on yourself because you were obviously going through a very difficult time to be in that yeah. position in the I first place. I guess so, but again, I don't have a yeah. When you're a teenager, you don't have that perspective either. You just know what you want, and you don't really think about other people. I'm not saying you I don't want to make general statement, but I know I didn't really think about other people, um, and I know my foster parents were so wise. Again, I look back and I think. They made some decisions that they wouldn't wouldn't have made with their own children. They knew that I had just been roaming free and doing my own thing and just not really obeying any rules, not going to school. But they didn't come down as hard on me as they would have done with their own child had that been the case. You know, they had they went gently, and yeah, I thought it was all outrageous restriction. And now looking back, I think no, they were they yeah they really dealt with me very well in that sense and uh, yeah I can only (laughs) apologise to them How long did it take you to write the book? Um, I wrote it in during the pandemic lockdown so I think over about a year And how do you write? Do you kind of sit down early morning midday and just write or do you do it in sections or I am not I am not disciplined or routine focused at all. In fact, I'm still finding out where I write best. And I'm currently finding out that if I wake up in the morning, I often wake up about half past five, six o'clock. If I get my laptop out then, go make a cup of tea, sit with my laptop then, I I can really focus and concentrate. So I'm just finding that out. So, I yeah, I'm still discovering when I write best. And I write also, I like writing late at night between about two and four in the afternoon don't even expect a word (laughs) I'm also learning that this has taken me a long time I've been writing for about 40 years or so Um, I'm learning that sometimes you just have to sit and write rubbish you just have to sit and get that first draft out get that first draft out and this sequel particularly that I've just finished the draft of has been written very much like that and I've been bearing in mind what um Hilary Mantel said that some days for her it was just subject, verb and object and that is drilled into my brain now that if all I can do is write Jackie went to bed (laughs) that's fine uh, because it's there and then I can come back to it so I think, yeah, I think I'm still really developing my own way of doing things successfully and a way of doing it that doesn't send me into some kind of chasm of despair for about three weeks where I think okay I'm not doing this why am I even doing this yeah am I right in thinking that you didn't write cuckoo necessarily chronologically no that's right because um I was meeting during lockdown I met every week with a buddy of mine called Lisa writing buddy and we would set each other prompts just random prompts mainly by just saying, OK, what should we do this week? Let's just look round the room. OK, doors, <laughs> kitchens. This is a Zoom thing. Yeah, over Zoom, uh, because we were in lockdown, so we couldn't meet. And I was already sort of um, brewing this idea of writing about this foster child, and we set each other the prompt yellow. Let's do the colour yellow. And so that week, for my homework, 
I sat down and I thought I'm going to write a scene where this foster mother shows the girl a new foster child round a yellow bedroom. I didn't really know how the colour yellow would become significant. Um, and so I wrote it actually at first in the foster mother's voice, in Bridget's voice, and from Bridget's perspective. And she's showing Jackie around the foster room, the, the, the new bedroom, and it's painted sunflower yellow. And I read it and I reread it and I thought, oh, I'm just not getting this. This is going to be no good. Um, heading towards the chasm of despair. And then I thought, no, let's rewrite this in the teenager's voice. And gosh, that was so different. She just kind of sprang into life and she's all sarcastic and hurt and in a strange place and not wanting to call her Auntie Bridget. And I just thought, yeah, that's somebody I kind of want to hear more from. So that did actually become the first scene, but the, the weeks after that, we set each other all kinds of prompts and I just wrote whatever scene... I think once we did birthdays, we said, let's do birthdays. And so I wrote a random scene where it was Bridget's birthday and Uncle Nick takes the kids to the to Woolworths to buy birthday presents. So then it was a case of rearranging the scenes and getting them in the right order. And the one thing I have had criticised about my writing in the past, and I think why it's taken me so long to get to the place where I actually had a fiction novel published... Um, is because I just couldn't structure, I just couldn't get the hang of how you hook a reader. I couldn't, yeah, I wasn't very good at where do you put little clues, how do you drop hints, and I gradually, I think with this book, I began to realise that I was doing that now. And, I was, and did it just happen? I mean, you were an English teacher for many years. Yeah, I know, and I've even taught structure. Now I just, yeah, maybe I just need to be an English teacher all over again and teach structure properly. And I think I did, I did teach it fairly well. I just didn't apply it to my own writing, maybe. But, yeah, that was always what I got criticised for. But the sequel, you've so far been writing it chronologically. So far, yeah. No, yeah, I have been writing it chronologically, apart from going back in and inserting scenes or developing characters, which I've been doing a bit more of recently. So your first novel was published at the age of 60, mm. grandmother of two. Mm. Um, I, I hear all the time people kind of asking, am I too old for this, am I too old for this? And I feel really strongly that age should never be a barrier to anything in life. Did, was that anything that ever occurred to you or did you just want to get on with it and that was irrelevant? Um, I guess I guess I feel like I've been warming up to this really because I started off... As a teenager writing poems, um, angst-filled poems, which I burned <laughs> when I was 17, 18, because, um, I don't know, I just felt that maybe they weren't fit for human consumption. And I wish I hadn't done that. Um, I moved on to writing funny poems for people's occasions and birthdays and things like that. And then I, when I became a teacher... Um, when I was 40 I started writing for the Times Educational Supplement that was little articles, funny pieces opinion pieces and I wasn't even writing fiction by that point at all but then I started writing a few short stories and got some published um, and I think I feel like I've been gradually working up to long form <laughs> <laughs> having done a lot of sort of short form writing and I don't really I th don't think I thought of age in it really and I guess 
because I see writing as something I can do until I, you know, my final breath. So, depending on when that comes, <laughs> um, I could have years and years to carry on writing. I think it's perpetuated. I mean, I understand why there are prizes for 30 under 30 or writers under 40, and now actually there's new prizes for over 60s, 50 and over 60, 60 as well, which is great. Yeah. Um, and, and I absolutely applaud that opportunity, but equally, I, I think that judge, perhaps we should judge a book not either on its cover, mm. although that helps, mm. but on, on its writing, and it shouldn't matter who's yeah. written it or how old they are. Well, I mean, I've just, you know... Cuckoo in the Nest is a book from the point of view of a 14-year-old. So it's not, it's not as if you're always writing about, you know, your perspectives aren't always the age that you are anyway, so I don't know that that really matters. I, I mean, I, and I think actually by the age of 60, especially if you've been writing for a long time, as I, you know, lots of different things, you've learned so much by then. You know, you've got so much to give in different sort of ways. So, yeah, I don't think it should be a barrier, and I... I, I, this is the first year, I think, when I've actually thought, do you know, you could just do this. You could just write and write and write, and this could be your life now. And that's actually quite a new thought for me. because A I've good only, thought? Yeah, it is really good, because I suppose I've only just retired as a teacher, and I wasn't even sure if I'd retired properly anyway. This year was my year for sort of finding out, and I guess because you took on Cuckoo in the Nest... And because I'm writing a sequel, you know, and I hope that that might come out too, I'm sort of thinking, oh, this is different. <laughs> this is a whole new way of thinking that I might actually be an author. Um, you are an author. Yeah, I know, but it just takes so long to say that. <laughs> um, I feel like I've had to make a transition from saying writer to author. There's something about writer that feels like it's not, you know, you could be writing anything. Author, you're writing books. I think, yeah, and it's, uh, yeah, I went into my uh, grandson's primary school yesterday and chatted to his class about what it's like to be an author and they're like all their wide eyes and I was thinking, gosh, they actually actually believe me. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) What did they want to know? What were the best Um, questions? They wanted to know how long it takes to write a book. They wanted to know how much money you get. (laughs) I did a little quiz for them to see how much they knew and one of the questions was about, you know, how much they think an author earns, um, how much do you think an author earns if someone borrows the book from the library, and what were the other questions I gave them? How long do you think, how how many words a day do you think a Grandma Hill, I was called, for the day, <laughs> writes? And, I mean, you know, their perspectives are really interesting, but they had questions on um, different genres um, and whether I would ever write some science fiction or fantasy um, yeah, they were really interested, actually. And, That's great. Uh, it was it was fun. What do you read? Um, I read. I well, it's easier to say what I don't read. I I really am not into science fiction, fantasy. I like real world stuff. So anything from Jane Austen kind of social satire to any contemporary novel that's about family, family dynamics. Um, I love Rachel Joyce's work. Um, I love Elizabeth Strout's work. Um, any anyone who's talking about families and relationships and conflicts in that so I maybe I'm not that adventurous but there are plenty of novels around with those kinds of um, stories so that's what I like and as soon as anyone mentions zombies I'm kind of out of there really I like the real world 
I'm going to bring this round to a very important question for this podcast, which is biscuits. <gasps> now, the biscuits we've been trying today were bought from Ireland by Gronya Murphy, author of Winter People. Hi, Gronya. And um, uh, magnificent biscuits. Um, chocolate jelly star, which is not something I'd ever heard of before. Shortbread covered in milk chocolate with a handmade raspberry jelly. Anyway, we've had the chance to sam- sample. Mm-hmm. Verdict. Okay, well, I, I don't know about you, but I'm going to give a verdict on the jelly star and the biscuit separately. Um, I would say about seven or eight for the jelly, because it was nice and chewy, actually. I thought it was going to be soft and kind of over in a second, but no, it wasn't. So seven, out of, seven or eight out of ten for that. But I really did like the biscuit, because it's kind of shortbready, so I'd say nine out of ten for that. So overall, overall eight out of ten. Yeah, um, the the um, jelly bit was harder than I expected, but in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt that the texture didn't go with the crumbly biscuit and they were better eaten separately. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm going to agree with you and give it an eight as well. Yeah. It's been so great to chat today. Thank you so much for coming in to join us. It's been an absolute look, delight. Look forward to finding out what Jackie does next. Yeah, me too. <laughs> And that's all for this week. A huge thank you to Fran for sharing her stories and Jackie with us all. Thank you all for listening. And as always, if you share our episodes on social media, don't forget to tag us at legend underscore times on Instagram and at legend underscore times underscore on Twitter. As mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the wonderful WF Howes have provided the first chapter of Cuckoo in the Nest audiobook. So make sure to keep listening. And until next time, have a great Monday, everyone. Chapter 1. Friday 9th of April, 1976. We reached the top of the stairs. Here you are, she said, pointing to the half-open bedroom door. She was smiling. Perhaps she thought I should have been more pleased to need a room in a house full of strangers. Bobby, my social worker, had suggested I call them Auntie Bridget and Uncle Nick. Suggest all you like, I'd said. She'd said, Remember that it's all strange to them too. This is very short notice. We thought it would be weeks, not days. That's not my fault. Of course not. But don't give them a hard time. They're not in your car on a Friday afternoon, I'd said, with luggage on the back seat. She'd replied, That is true. Sorry. Saying goodbye to Dad and seeing him cry had made me tense. It felt like anger. But I wasn't sure. And when I wasn't sure whether I was angry, my tone turned to vinegar. Now, not going to be Auntie Bridget. Pushed the door wide open and walked into a yellow bedroom. I blinked at first because sun was seeping in through the windows inappropriately, in my view. It looks different now, doesn't it? She said. We moved everything back in last night, just in time. I stayed in the doorway. They'd shown me the room when I'd visited with Dad earlier that week, but it had been emptied of furniture and the carpet covered in sheets. A decorator had been up a ladder, painting the ceiling. I love this paint we chose. Bridget said, standing at the end of a single bed covered in a patchwork eiderdown. It's cheerful, isn't it? I can smell it, I told her, 
Don't you love the smell of fresh paint? She said, stroking the wall as though it were a cat. It's only just dry. I'm not that familiar with fresh paint lately. She looked uncomfortable, and I felt bad. So I stepped in and ran my non-bandaged hand along the surface of a chest of drawers that was next to the bed to smooth myself down. Anyway, she said, I hope you like the colour. I think it's called Sunflower Yellow. I turned my body to look first at the wall by the window, then the wall opposite the bed, near where she was standing, then the wall by the door, then the wall behind the bed. I did it slowly, as though I was at a museum or something. I needed time. You decorated it for me, I said. She smiled as though I'd given her a Christmas present. I said, even though I'm only here for a few weeks. For you and anyone else who needed somewhere, somewhere more stable to be. But you're our first foster child, yes. I said, where's your daughter's room? She's right next door, she said reassuringly as though she thought I'd require emergency solace in the night. She pointed to the wall behind the bed. She's fourteen too, although you already know that. Neither of us said anything for what seemed ages. We both kept looking at the walls like idiots. Well, she said, brushing down the front of her jumper as if she'd eaten a pastry. Time to bring your case upstairs, I suppose. It's a bag... And my school satchel. Your bag and satchel, then. Can I have five minutes? I said. On my own. In here? I nodded. She didn't shut the door when she left, so I closed it. But I could hear she hadn't gone downstairs. I waited. Sure enough, her voice, sounding as though she had one side of her face pressed to the door. What would you like for tea, Jackie? I've made a shepherd's pie. She'd done both question and answer. Shepherd's pie would be lovely, I said. And this time she went downstairs. I could imagine Bobby's face. That's better. Well done. I sat on the bed and looked at the walls again.